Isn't it funny, Scott, how there are some things in life that get easier the more and more you do them, but conversely, there are things that the more and more you do them, the more difficult it seems, or the more dust you can see in the corners. Oh. I see podcasting <laughs> as one of those things. It's like every week, you know, where this is Opus 149, you know, we're getting up close to the end of season three. I remember in those early opuses, the concept of turning on mics and just having a conversation seemed so easy. It seemed like something that we didn't have the opportunity to do uh, as creators very often, especially considering the way that we prep for radio and especially public radio, classical radio, all of that. You know, so it was like, okay, well, you know, no problem. We're going to cut on the mics and just have a conversation. Coming back and coming back week after week, it's like, okay, how do I one up myself? How do I, right. you know, continue the the momentum? It's difficult. How do you deal? What 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 do do you give yourself a, a pep talk on your drive over here every week? What do you do? <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> Have some rock music going on in the car. To... <laughs> Usually in the mornings, that's when I do my listening, you know, mm. and and reading of stuff, you know, and I try to avoid other tech. Yeah. And so that's my time. And on the way over here, I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm just quiet. You know, on Mondays I go I can go all day and not say a word. So you save you save all of your words for triloquy. I See how my it. voice is still just still warming up. <laughs> well, we'll get we'll get you warmed up today. Mm. When I think about the way that uh, things used to be when it comes to triloquy. It makes me think about the way things used to be when it comes to uh, advocating for renewing certain spaces within Western classical music. I, I began all of my you know trouble making in public radio down in, in Tennessee. Shout out to WUOT. And the first composer that I was really trying to cram down people's throats, so to speak, um, while I, you know, every show of mine had somebody black. You mm -hmm. know, and some women can. So that was always a part of my thing. But the composer that I wanted to really normalize for that audience in particular was Philip Glass. Do you have any uh, ideas on Philip Glass as far as his level of appropriateness now versus when you were first getting started in classical radio? The, sure. These days, it's not so radical to put on some Philip Glass, no. but maybe, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was a different story. Uh, I don't remember those things coming across my playlist hardly at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, a lot of people, this is shocking stuff for some reason, or it's too much, too fast. Mm -hmm. And other people are like, wow, more of this, please. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And just so that, you know, people know what we're talking about. One of the pieces by Philip Glass that I'm always paying attention to and, and returning to um it's his first violin concerto. This is the opening of his, uh, uh, of the third movement of his first violin concerto. And in this music, you can just feel some tenseness. It mm. feels like something is about to happen. And what's about to happen is a violin soloist up at the front of the orchestra bodying the burialage, you know, bodying the technique. Let's listen here. to think that 
music that sounds like that, that aesthetic had to be fought for mm. <laughs> and not all that long ago. I yep. had a lot of, and, and everyone is, you know, entitled to their own taste in music. That's fine. But one of the biggest critiques that I would get when I would program Glass is that, oh, well, I understand that young people like you like all of that fast sounding music, but, we're just, stuff. but we're, we're just trying to find something to relax to. And, you know, that's not appropriate for this and that and, and whatever. So, as, <laughs> you know, as, as much as you know we have conversations of racial equity and gender equity and how those things can renew classical spaces it's important to remember that some of these and i almost hate saying it here on this platform but some of these white men got a hard road too <laughs> you know you know you know their music not being accepted and and put into the space you can you can tell it's time for our uh between season break because i'm here in the opening of triloquy giving it up for somebody uh -oh. of a paler hue so uh -oh. <laughs> to, to, to class solidarity i suppose hello everybody mm -hmm. this is opus 149 the uh, penultimate opus of triloquy for season three and we're gonna uh get going this week with a downbeat from van lathan for folks who don't know van lathan uh was formerly with tmz he uh, was in the middle of a huge media firestorm when he was fired on some racial stuff if you want to uh backtrack and, and look at that. Um, I'll have a, a link in the description, but I watched an interview that he did uh, earlier uh, today and he hit on something, Scott, that I want us to talk about before we get into the topics that we have uh, to talk about today. Let's take a listen. To, it's weird to have the conversation about why blackface is wrong for the 100th time. Like you're like, Yo, wait, are you stupid or am I? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like who, who like, and, and all of these things over and over again, waking up, watching brothers and sisters killed all the time, you can't help but be crazy. Some of these social justice people that you know, that like, that you guys see, I know them, they are not terribly well-adjusted people. It's just hard to be. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be a terribly well-adjusted person when you are fighting for something that's right, but you are constantly assailed right. all the time from every single side. So, so you, do you see how that part of the conversation, what he was saying, <laughs> reminds me of our work? Mm -hmm. Let's put just for right now conversations of race and gender to the side. We were just talking about Philip Glass and making space for his music that does not sound like Beethoven, Mozart, and him, but making equal space for it uh, in, in these classical spaces. When you hear music like that and it really engages with your spirit and your musical sensibilities and what you want audiences to hear and folks are just sending you emails about how this is trash, this is noisy, oh, what are you doing? It's hard to stay well-balanced. That's what Van Lathan was saying there, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. much, so much. So there's that. But then when you have someone like me, you know, a black man who is trying to do what I can to make sure that historic black composers, much less the black composers today, have equal footing, who a lot of times music is not as crunchy, as they say, as some of these other contemporary composers like Philip Glass. When I have to deal with that, mm -hmm. that just intensifies it and really makes you just feel crazy. Or what am I doing? Or should I have a job where I don't have to uh, deal with these sorts of things? I, I wonder if you can speak to the, the uh, challenge of remaining well-adjusted in the change-making work that we do, the change-making work that you do? I don't know, because I don't know if I'm necessarily the best subject to ask about that sort of thing. I don't feel particularly well-adjusted right now. Yeah. But 
Um, you know, who was it that said to keep doing things over and over and expecting something different? That's right. the definition. Yeah, I think they say that's the Einstein quote. I've, I've heard that or that's Franklin, Benjamin, appropriate, yeah. but anyway. Okay, yeah. so Abraham Franklin said right. <laughs> said <laughs> right. this. Right. And yeah, I, 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 how many more times? It, it, it's like when you have a, a Haydn symphony that comes up over and over and Ciao. over. Ciao. And they all sound the same. If we really gonna say something about it, now I'm not. I'm. I'm. All I'm saying is, is that how how many times are you gonna tell the same story? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if you can, you know, if you can add something new. I mean, to me, Philip Glass is old school. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Much much less the Rite of Spring. Right. And all of the Albin right. Albin Berg compositions that are a hundred years old or more now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when when you talk about repeating the same old stories, having dealt with that in uh Western classical spaces, I feel like plays a role in um how I try to keep from doing that in other ways, despite the fact that I may need to, uh, for the sake of equity, shout out to Caesar, you know, my my mentor in, in many ways and in, in Buddhism and music. Uh, we were on the line today. I had a meeting with him and, you know, he has a weekly program, uh, a weekly uh, Zoom live lecture series that he does. And, you know, folks donate and, you know, it, it's really incredible what uh, he's built for himself. Uh, but every other time oh, I have a meeting with him, he says, Garrett, I hate to tell you, and I know that you won't believe me, but no one has heard of Florence Price. <laughs> and that sounds ridiculous mm -hmm. to me, especially considering yeah. the fact that we say her name and William Grant Still's name so much that we try to point folks to other black composers, the Nathaniel Detts and the Margaret Bonds, as not to repeat the name Florence Price and William Grant still too much. And even so, it's still people who somehow just have not heard of them. In the second movement today, I'm going to talk about uh, William Grant still um, and a piece of music that I'm actually performing in, in real life coming up uh, this week. But uh, one of the collaborators had not heard of of William Grant still. What, what are your thoughts on balancing uh, not beating the horse as we did with Beethoven versus the fact that as much as it feels like we're saying those names, William Grant still Florence Price, mm -hmm. is still more repetition that we need to do for the sake of the folks who still have not heard of it. Yeah, there's a, a saying that the first program director I worked with had was, um, every, somebody is discovering this for the first time yeah. every time. Mm -hmm. And that is so hard. That is so hard to keep in mind because sure. when you see something that you've talked about come up over and over and you go, <sighs> yeah, all right, <laughs> let me see I what I, you. let me see how I, how we can, how we can dress this up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, I will say that there has been improvements. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people are, are familiar with those names, certainly more than they were 10 years ago, much less 20 right. years ago. And I also, yeah, and I also there's think there's still more room to go. And I also think that there are people that are more open minded to this sort of thing than they realize. Yeah. Because of what they've, the only thing that they've had created an expectation of a certain experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that there are people out there that are hungry about it. And another thing that I try to do to keep myself centered is remember that only the, it, it, usually it's the the people with the most extreme opinions are sounding off so the loudest okay <laughs> right no but i mean when you get a salty email oh right or something like that right you know there's a lot of people in there that i'm sure the things that you say and do are resonating with but they don't but 
they don't feel like they need to write to you and and say one way or the other. Right, right. And and I I think about that all the time, yeah. especially when you're going through some of those uh, not so great comment threads and and emails. I'll, I'll probably speak to some of that here uh, a little later this opus. But um, before we uh, jump in, I wanted to you know again circle back to what Van Lethal was saying about not being well balanced later on in the uh in the interview he talks about identifying co-conspirators uh identifying accomplices as one of those means of just keeping your mind together and not feeling like you're you're uh totally crazy uh how do you deal with the question of well what can i do or what 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 is the the best thing for me to uh, contribute to this sort of work of DEI? Like, how do you how do you address that if it comes your way when it comes your way? Sure. Well, the first thing is is to help that person out, and say it is not the responsibility of the person that you're asking to find out what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You need to go and find your blind spots and do that work. Right. So that's the first thing that you would say. But as far as recognizing when other people are doing it, I mean, uh, you really got to be looking because the people who are really doing this kind of work well aren't broad, aren't broadcasting all this pat me on the back stuff, right? You know, right? That sort of a thing. And while and the the I, I, I sigh because and we've talked about this on Triloquy. I understand and recognize that so much of the work happens behind the scenes and there can sometimes be schisms between Mm -hmm. folks who have very front facing work and say, oh, well, I'm the only one out here doing X, Y, and Z. And then other people are like, well, I'm behind the scenes doing these things. I I acknowledge and honor the, all of the behind the scenes work that happens. And I acknowledge that uh, front facing work requires, unfortunately, front-facing critique mm-hmm. and front-facing, you know, pushback. Yeah. And again, it's not like this is some uh, some spatial sort of abstract concept that we're trying to put into the world. There are actual values and actual individuals that are connected with the battle of renewing classical spaces. Um, so before we jump in this week, I just wanted to offer everybody that something that they can do. Yes, Scott, I agree with you that it's not the onus of marginalized people to figure out the roadmap for folks in positions of power. And there are initiatives happening where folks can join folks uh, who are doing the work that we do here and helping to renew these spaces. I'm going to quickly read uh, today. uh, It was announced the uh, formation of the Black Orchestral Network on the front page of their website. uh, You'll read that the Black Orchestral Network started with a theory. It says, if we increase our connection to one another, we can harness our creativity and develop initiatives that benefit Black musicians. The founders of the Black Orchestral Network are uh, Jen Arnold with the Richmond Symphony, member of the Triloquy family, Mm. Uh, Alex Lang, who will be coming on Triloquy, uh, not today, but uh, next week, along with Jen, to talk a bit uh, about the Black Orchestral Network. We we have uh, David Norville, who's been on Triloquy. And and, and let me give a a special dramatic boom (laughs) to David Norville, because when he said, oh, classical spaces are the last vestiges of white supremacy and y'all don't want to talk about it, that's when I felt like Triloquy was going in the right direction. Mm. And that was early (laughs) in season one. So shout out to Dave Norville. Um, uh, Among the other founders are Joy Payton Stevens, uh, a cellist uh, down uh, in the Seattle area. We have uh, Shea Scruggs, legendary oboe player who now works um, in um, 
in uh, philanthropy and, 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 and those spaces. Weston Sprott, trombonist with the Met uh, Orchestra, with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And of course, Titus Underwood, who we all know sure. and love. So th- th- this is a, a star a studded array of change makers who are not only out here preaching and yelling and screaming into the ether, but folks who have put something together for everyone to jump on to, to force the orchestral industry to do what it needs to do to really diversify its stage toward diversifying its audiences. So uh, you can join the cause by being a signatory to their letter. You can read the letter and learn more about each of the founders at blackorchestralnetwork.org. When we started this show, Scott, when we started Triloquy, it didn't seem to be that many people who understood the problem, much less people who understood how to approach the problem, how to form things to get us talking about how we're going to change it. Now, you know, here in 2022, there are more and more grassroots organizations um, and uh, even more individuals fighting this good fight. We have chosen, Scott, you know, what, no, no matter what happens at this point, we have chosen what side of this battle of this conversation we're on Mm -hmm. you listening right now it's time for you to make that step up choice that definitive choice help us be a part of this push and continue to listen to hear us talk about more of this push let's get into it Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 149. Scott, speaking of that push. That's crazy. That that push for change. um, I wonder if you can just quickly think of uh, an example of what you are comfortable saying here on Opus 149 that maybe you wouldn't have been comfortable saying or admitting or shining a light on in Opus 9 or Opus... 49. I feel like there have to be, you know, again, as I was speaking to, more and more people are joining the cause of of seeing a problem with orchestral spaces, number one, and then working to renew them. Maybe um, naming the problem is something that is completely normal now or more normal for you now than yeah. it was at the very beginning. It's Yeah, it's all about audience as to what I feel comfortable saying where I have mm. to think about who I'm delivering it to, right? Yeah. And the way that I communicate here is very different diff, different than the way that I communicate at my job. Right. But there are aspects of both in each. Yeah. And I'm taking darts from both sides. Oh, yeah. I hear so, you. I hear you. Yeah. So um, with, that accept, with, with that, me accepting the fact that that's just going to happen, there's a little bit of freedom that comes with that. Yeah. If you walk into, if you walk into that room like, all right, well... Someone's going to get irritated. Let's see who it is. <laughs> you know, and and that that freedom I feel like makes the work more genuine. There there are fewer um concessions that are being made with that freedom when it comes mm. to what one will talk about or Yeah, there was a, a recently during a shift someone was was sitting in and having a chat and I did a quick break that was a little bit spicy. I turned off the microphone and I turned around and I said 
and now we wait. <laughs> Do you remember what the break was or what you were talking about? Yeah, I was I was telling that saying that folks should not refer to somebody as the blah blah Mozart. As we the still blah, doing blah, that. Chopin, we still Van the Lathan blah, just Mahler. said how many times are we gonna say blackface is wrong? You right. are still up there and on I, the radio station telling I, these people <laughs> don't say the black Mozart. Damn. <laughs> So it was actually the Black Mauler, but okay, oh, cool. Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Right. So it was a different break. <laughs> it was a different break. <laughs> they they will find somebody to compare us to every time. The Black Mozart, the and Black Mauler, and that's the, really the, that was you know so, it was so gentle. They love to call Florence Price the Black Dvorak had, the, without saying it. You know, the, the, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was it was a very gentle like you know I just I don't think that's cool. Don't do that. Here's some Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Here's some Samuel Coleridge Taylor. <laughs> Shout out to you, Scott. One minute fifteen seconds. You got some email. Ping. <laughs> you got mail. Oh my baldness. gosh! Ooh. The 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 laughs from from the work keep me from just completely tearing my head off and throwing it in the trash can. Hello, everybody. Thank you for <laughs> returning. Um, to new listeners, this is a podcast. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and contextualizes it to include more, more music, more conversation and everything in between. You can check out past opuses and contribute to the Triloquy podcast at Triloquy.org. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution, making sure that artists have a means of making a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a thank you to the Lakeville Area Arts Center. Center. I'll be performing some uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, speaking of the so-called Black Mozart, and, and uh, some William Grant Still. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the second movement, but I want to uh, send a thanks to them. If you're in the Minnesota area and you want to, you know, you're, you're used to hearing me talk and, and talk shit, if you want to hear me actually play the bassoon, you know, what, I, what I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, 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 the, if the, uh, at, the ecosystem wasn't so ghetto out here, if you want to hear me play... I'll have information in the description. And I also want to send a thank you of support uh, to the Hennepin County Library. Uh, the Hennepin County uh, Library is in the middle of what they call men's spin right now, Scott. Mm. That's when folks uh, offer their recordings, their self-made recordings of music. Um, and there are curators who go in and select uh, a number of those to be included in the library system so that folks can go listen to local music, uh, new uh classical music so-called and otherwise right there at the library so shout out to, to hennepin county library i'll have more information on men's spin in the description of this as well a few things to talk about this week i think scott what do you have to say so let's go ahead jump in this is movement one You have an accidental that you brought in, and i'll go ahead and give it a sharp you said this one is going to get a sharp mm-hmm. but the headline scott is a question that I feel like I've been just directly asking on this podcast for the past at least couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Can classical music be inclusive? Not we need to make it inclusive, mm-hmm. but can it be? Before we get into this uh, article by Tom Hozinga, what is your answer to that question? Just the, the, the plain answer to the question. Can classical music really be inclusive? In my positive frame of mind, I say, of course, and I have to be optimistic and I tell myself that I can be part of that. I don't necessarily have to lead it. I can be part of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's times when you ask me <laughs> <laughs> what you asked me just a few moments ago. And then there's times when you're at work playing Baccarini. And <laughs> I haven't had Baccarini for a while. But, but anyway. the point, no, the point being that um, it depends on when you ask me. Sure. But 
I, I'm I'm doing everything I can every day to keep the the positive. I have to, yeah, because the, like I said before, if I don't, I fall into despair. Well, when they asked Jesse Montgomery, she said that she believes classical music can be inclusive. Right, that was the following of it. Uh, Jessica, Mon- the rest of the title, Jess- Jesse Montgomery thinks so. And uh, a few months ago, I brought in an article that. Uh, the uh, you might remember the headline was the changing American canon sounds like Jesse Montgomery, mm-hmm. and we yeah. talked about well wait does she want that mantle does right. she want that sort of spotlight yeah okay so she answered it here uh, the answer was she is in an exceptional position not only as a composer whose works are suddenly skyrocketing in demand but one who feels responsibility to help lead the field face sharper questions of diversity and inclusion. While the brighter spotlight comes with pressure, she relishes the opportunity to help reframe American music and the institutions that present it. I take that as a little bump of inspiration. Yeah. And with great privilege comes great responsibility for anyone. You know, we talk about folks still don't know the name Florence Price. Mm-hmm. So for folks who still don't know the name Jessie Montgomery, she's a, a black woman, a living uh, composer. I think she's about 40 years old. I think that's what it says uh, here in this uh, article. You've met her in person. Yeah. You know, shared shared a, a little of the, the devil's lettuce, as it were, <laughs> over in, Michi- in Detroit. I'm putting all her business out here. But mm-hmm. listen, she's down. And... One of the conversations that we tend to skirt, not only here on Triloquy, but just in art spaces, is the fact that as orchestras start to commission more women composers and composers of color, it's about four or five of them mm-hmm. that that get the call all across the country. And Jesse Montgomery is at the top of that list. But with that privilege comes great responsibility. And it seems like that sh- that is not lost on her and that she is taking that responsibility seriously. Well, when we talk about what fires you up to continue when you see what you're up against, then you get nonsense articles coming out like the one that you're going to bring in. Um, man, I can't help but think about that responsibility. Mm-hmm. One of the questions uh, that Tom asked her in this uh, written interview, I have it linked in the description. He says, it's quite possible that what presenters are afraid to offer is any brand new music see Mm -hmm. we were talking Mm -hmm. about that in Mm -hmm. the opening again with philip glass having to fight for him and he's not even a black man right uh but but i think uh jesse says something really important in response to that question uh she says here even organizations like the sphinx organization that i've been a part of since 1999 and they've been a tremendous supporter of my career that is committed to diversity in classical music just this year had their first program of all black and latinx composers there was always this need or belief that we had to have a so-called real classical piece on there by an old traditional composer in order to legitimize the program we all Mm -hmm. are going on a journey and i think that's the one of the key things to understand the way that i programmed at uh wuot back in 2016 it was radical you know but i would be even do i would do be doing even more now because there are just certain things certain aesthetics and certain conversations that have been normalized so toward broadening that spectrum of normalization we have to keep pushing right you're yeah you'll always be the one out there on the edge but (laughs) gladly right and see (laughs) another thing that she said gives me some hope and that I try to apply to radio listenership. I try to, I, I've said before, I try to give people a little bit more space to uh, 
not I, I try to not assume that people are going to be closed-minded to yeah. something. Yeah. So what she says with any kind of programming, with any new kind of programming and endeavor, you take a leap of faith that the audience is going to be into it. She says, I find that audiences show up because they want the experience of live music or live theater, something that sparks their imagination and soothes soothes their pain. Yeah. So I would take that cue, if I were in charge of programming, I would take that cue to get a little bit more adventurous, to to widen the circle a little bit, engage it. Yeah. Give, give your audiences some credit. It's interesting that you talk about that, you know, giving the audience some credit. Uh, one of the things uh, she writes here is, or that she said here has been transcribed, as a Black person, you sit down to write and you think, oh, these rhythms are going to be too air quotes, jazzy, which is not mm. even accurate or too hyperrhythmic. Or maybe I shouldn't put these bins in. It's going to sound too black or something. And that's unfortunately something that I have struggled with in my own thinking about my music. We talk about code switching in the way that we dress yeah. or in the way that we speak. The idea of artistic, I mean, what the 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 fruit of your being, right. you know, as a composer, how you have to double think it because somebody is going to perceive those notes in a way. And again, we talked about this a while ago, the idea of are the notes themselves racist? Well, there are cultural implications, you know, even sometimes racial implications of some of these notes, you know, just mm -hmm. the, the straight up sounds that come out. And it's not lost on folks like Jesse Montgomery that there are people who will hear those things and say, oh, that's jazz. That doesn't belong here. Oh, that's bluesy. That doesn't belong here, which when I hear that, all I hear people saying is, oh, that's black. That doesn't belong here. I understand you. <laughs> and that's all that. <laughs> and that's all you have to say on that. Okay, well, um, thank you for that sharp shout out to Jesse no, Montgomery. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that Jesse's, some of Jesse's answers gave me uh, some inspiration, propped me up a little bit. Um, she talks about how really the industry is about building relationships. Yeah. Take that away. Yeah. It's it's about it, take that with you when you go. Is uh, this is this is all about communicating? It's all about creating a relationship, a reciprocal relationship. You know, as so I as I think answers. more about the fact and that legacy that Caesar was telling me that folks still don't know Florence Price, folks mm -hmm. still don't know William Grant. Still, um, I'm going to keep that in mind when it comes to Jesse Montgomery. You know, even in some of my own programming. Um, I find myself open to the critique of, well, you know, there are more living composers out here than Jesse Montgomery, but how about, well, not but, and, and how about we celebrate the fact that one of our own, a black woman from New York, you know, someone who um, had every opportunity to not be a name that we know in classical music, you know, the fact that she has made it, that's worth celebrating. And I'm, I'm going to do a, a better job of pushing her music even more. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the composer that they were tired of me playing at WUOT was Shostakovich, because <laughs> in that era of, of my transform the space thought, Shostakovich was a little was left, edgy. you know. Yeah. So, of course, I've gone way off from that, you know, the way that I would push Philip Glass. I'm going to be pushing some more uh, Jesse Montgomery. We talk about her piece uh, Starburst all the time. Folks play Banner all the time. Um, th those are those are some uh, two really incredible works. But I took a listen to a tune by Jesse Montgomery today that I hadn't heard before, so I'm gonna share a little bit of that here. It's a tune called Voodoo Dolls. This performance features the Lunart Festival strings. 
What are your first listen impressions on the aesthetic that Jesse Montgomery is putting out into the ecosystem by way of string quartet? There was a, a little hint of Philip Glass. I felt some of the, yeah. you know, the twitchiness sure, of it. That sure. was pretty good. I like the percussive nature yeah. at the beginning and you know as as a composer i know that a lot of in, in addition to thinking about how audiences are going to react yeah. i know that composers also have to think about how musicians are going to act because i know some of these especially some of these cello players <laughs> they're not about to be knocking on the instrument <laughs> you, you got to say that right when i took a drink you, you you gotta beg you gotta beg some of these string players i think it's called uh, they y'all gonna be in my email. I think it's called Dalsegno, where you take the wood of the bow mm -hmm. and beat them. You know they do that in the Berlioz, the uh, Symphony sure. Fantastique, and uh, you know. So I've seen a lot of uh, musicians just with a little pencil on their stand. Anyway, shout out to those musicians for giving us what we need. You know by offering the percussive aspect of it as well. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, yeah, shout shout out to uh, Lunar Strings and to Jesse Montgomery, uh, Voodoo Dolls. I'm gonna I'm gonna be returning to that a lot this week cool yeah because it's really cool all right well uh one more accidental for this first movement and it's gonna be a uh a, a flat for me and scott i hate to tell you it's more from norman lebrecht oh, we gotta read you know norman lebrecht at this point is one of those writers one of those critics that people see his name and they just decide okay you know what i'm not doing it I'm not even going to click on the article. He's neither here nor there. He's gone. You know, as uh, as as you might say in 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 a way of saying. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. <laughs> Before I jump into this article, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Because I know there are folks listening to this and they're like, oh, here we go. Norman Lebrecht, she's full of shit. I don't know why y'all even give him the time of day, why you uh, share his articles, give him the Internet traffic. Can you at least see what I and I and I put you in that box of people? My argument is that's how we got Donald Trump now, you know, letting the sleeping dragon just sleep until it's too late, until he's been fed enough or has had enough rest. I don't think it would be ridiculous to one day wake up to the news headline that, you know, the Met Orchestra or somebody has hired their new executive director, acclaimed you, critic, if, Norman Lebrecht. If that happened, you know? they better announce in blackface. <laughs> you said they better announce in blackface. What yes, you because that is ridiculous. <laughs> well, is it? But it's not outside the realm of possibility. You know, you yourself say that every time you cut on the TV, oh, you're not even surprised anymore by the crazy shit that be going on in the world. This that could be among the crazy things that happen if we don't shine a light the simulation. On, on, on this narrative. I think we need as many people as possible understanding what folks like Norman Lebrecht are out here doing um, and saying about people of color, specifically black folks. Some of them are alive. I had to cuss him out <laughs> several weeks, uh, several weeks, several months back. I think he was saying something about Randall Gooseby. Mm -hmm. And, sure. and I, uh, we even bleeped some stuff out of, of that one anyway. I'm 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 in my zone now. I'm I am uh, fully embracing Nam Yo Kyo. So I'm not gonna cuss Norman out, but we need to look at some of the things he said anyway. This article comes from the critic.co.uk. The title, Bring on the Big Beasts. He says here, think hard. You may remember a time when a symphony orchestra was a collection of musical instruments rather than an instrument of social policy. Stop right there. I don't remember that. 
I remember in the early 1800s when Beethoven was using symphonies most certainly as an instrument of social uh, policy and 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 uh, political thought i can go all the way back to how political it was if we're uh, centering western europe for someone like hildegard von bingen to be out here writing the stuff that she wrote mm-hmm. in that style as a woman so you know it's that there it, it has always been that speaking again of these things that we keep saying over and over and over again policy mm-hmm. politics social thought and music being one in the same it's not new. This, no. this is not new, and and we're, and we're still doing that to this day. <laughs> your ideas, your your thoughts, just on that opening. People who refuse to see yeah. orchestral music as something that does, in fact, have an impact on the world. Sure, you talked about Shostakovich. You know, there was uh, yeah, he uh, he was out here in real trouble with the right. real law. Um, Prokofiev yep. ended up in exile. Rachmaninoff couldn't get back home for what two decades, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, 1899, Jean Sibelius writes Finlandia. Um, yeah, so I, I'm just going to go back to the Norman thing that I've seen this show. <laughs> and so. Sure. I, sure. Uh, and as I glance through it, okay, we have the, okay, uh, left hand, uh, let's have some, some, um, backhanded the, compliment. Yeah, let's hear a couple backhanded compliments. This is almost okay in a, adagietto Mahler-esque sort of kind of way but it it doesn't you know there's all the it's all the ingredients are there from the show that i have already seen what he is circling in a number of examples is the fact that he doesn't think it's fair that we're sidelining the so-called true masters because of the political correctness and the and the social justice activist aspect of programming. Let me read uh, one of the uh, statements here. He writes, the National Symphony Orchestra of Washington, D.C. is putting on a cycle of Beethoven symphonies paired with works by George Walker and William Grant Still. Both were blanked in their lifetimes because of their skin color and both deserve a fair hearing but to bracket them with Beethoven as so-called American masters is like speed dating James Galway with a penny whistler so he doesn't like the idea that these black composers have any proximity in the way that we honor them to the one and only great Beethoven how are you going to tell me that this man is just not straight up racist see Moving ahead in the arts, we talk about transforming these spaces. The thing that we also need to let into the space and normalize in the space is really speaking to racism, capital R, racism, when we see it. That's what uh, I get One of the, one of the bylines, meek white Finns who apologize for their whiteness and maleness. Um, I don't even know what to do with it, man. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Okay, no, okay. What's no, funny? No. Uh, when, when, when he talks about the beast, what he's getting at is someone who will finally just stand up I understand for, that. for classical music. You know, he misappropriates uh, Florence Price as someone from Kentucky. She was from Arkansas for the record. But what I put on my social media, uh, what I quoted as soon as I saw this a uh, few days ago, is what it says here. He says, hypocrisy abounds in this debate. I have campaigned as loud and long as Marin Alsop for an even playing field, but I would never consent to the designation of George Walker as a deathless American master. What is needed right now is a music director with the balls. He said that. Can you believe that? 
with the balls in a non-gender sense <laughs> to resist the reformist trolls, a J.K. Rowling who will stand up for truth, a conductor who can put the music first. Mm -hmm. He is really standing out here on the ledge because the if you, if you don't know the way, the, the way that they canceled J.K. Rowling out here, you've been sleeping under a rock or don't pay attention to Harry Potter. But this is someone, Norman Lebrecht, someone who really wants a, dare I say, Donald Trump type figure, this great white knight, if I may, to come onto the podium and say enough with the identity politics, enough with all of this DEI nonsense. Let's get back to orchestral concerts as they should should be mm. it's frustrating to see but what's more frustrating scott really the point i want to make in bringing this in i'll let y'all read everything that he has to say but i believe that we are complicit in some of these actions and thoughts when we put forward the oh well we're not trying to erase the canon we're just trying to renew the canon when we continue to do that are we not maintaining the ivory tower of this canon? Are we not saying, well, we shouldn't get rid of it completely, but we can sprinkle in some George Walker and William Grant still here and there. I believe that we even have to cut that language and say, throw it all away, put Beethoven on the shelf, put Brahms on the shelf, and let's focus on new things. It's like folks like Norman Lebrecht, are, are empowered and, and platformed to speak their non-compromising truth. And everyone else believes that some sort of mixed bag, oh, we can have both, is the way forward. That mm. thinking has gotten us here. Mm. That, that thinking has gotten us where we are right now. I believe, and I've been saying this for a long time, if you put Brahms and Beethoven and all of these overperformed uh, so-called canonical composers, if you put their music on the shelf for 10 seasons, five seasons, maybe even one season, there wouldn't be a shortage of music. There wouldn't be a shortage of literature for these orchestras to play. We would just be getting rid of a level of respectability politics that I think even some of the most progressive of us don't realize that we're hanging on to. I am unapologetically, at this point, I'm unapologetically on the side of the debate that says, let's not play the canonical composers. And that's not me saying that we're going to throw all of the European composers away mm -hmm. because shout out to Erilyn Wallen, you mm -hmm. know, shout out to uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, shout out to uh, all of these women composers and black composers over from over there. But it's not actually going to hurt us or hurt anything to say, let's just cut Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart and Haydn and Debussy and Ravel. Uh, let's, let's just cut them out. Let, let's just full stop, stop performing them. Okay. Norman laid out a whole bunch of stuff that is not fact, it is opinion. So I will lay out opinion as well. I agree with Jesse. If you have people that want to be electrified by music in your audience, if you want people who uh, want that sort of communal experience, like she was talking about in this interview, then I think you would be far better served to put in something new rather than playing the Invisible City of Kirtej suite right. or something. Because tell me the last time you went to an orchestra performance where every single thing on the program was an absolute banger that you loved. Never. <laughs> Never. Okay, now I see some that are getting close to it now. now, now but, well, well, let me edit that statement. Not an orchestral show. You know, over, over the weekend, I went and saw um, Third Coast. A percussion mm -hmm. shout out to them and they actually started their show with a, a piece by philip glad an arrangement of a metamorphosis uh 
And I was engaged that whole time. Now, of course, there were other aspects include, you know, there was a, the, the big thing was dance. They had two dancers that were interpreting the music uh, live in the moment, which I've, I've, I think is another conversation, how sitting down and just looking at an orchestra or looking at an ensemble play, especially that kind of music, that might also be a, a thing of the past. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like you think that I'm trying to egg you on or, or, or get you to, to say something. But I, I really do see it as an issue of completely wiping out the respectability that has always existed in this art form, saying things like we don't have to completely get rid of the canon is an acknowledgement of Norman Lebrecht's point in saying that we can't move this music. We can't move this tradition. I'm here to say we can we just won't. I got, I got you. And the only thing that I can come back with on the, on the radio perspective is there's a lot of people that have the potential to tune in and, and hear something, right? Right. And some of those people are going to be people of color and they are going to like Beethoven and Brahms. Yeah, of course. And as a, and as a public broadcaster, that's what they do is, is try to play stuff for everybody. Now I, I understand your perspective is is that it's it's white Europeans. I get that. I get that. That's why I'm saying not all of it goes. Let's just have the let's just have the heady mix. Let's just have have the mixture. That's what I like in my radio. And I and I don't want, you know, some sort of narrative to get out there that is look, I'm not saying throw away white composers. I I, I don't I don't draw the line there because anyone who has followed my work over the years, especially in um, in, uh, ra in radio production, you you'll see women composers all throughout my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you will see uh, composers and aesthetics that aren't Western at all. You know, something that a lot of these folks don't do. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about Silk Road and them uh, the other week. You know, so it's it's uh, people uh, composers with uh, different abilities. You know that that is important to uh, to highlight. Um, of course, I'm gonna you know, ride for the black composers as a as a black man. But True. I don't know. The the point is there are so many people who don't have to hold their nose or compromise when they make certain opinions or do certain things. I, I hate to turn it to politics, but there were far fewer people holding their nose to vote for Donald Trump than there were people holding their nose to vote for Joe Biden. You know, there's one side of the fence that is always going to feel like, oh, well, it's about compromise. And then there's the other side who says what they want and, and puts it all out there. And and that, you know, overrides other right. thing or or maintains a status quo. That's what I feel like we're dealing with in the arts. And, you know, as we see more organizations like the Black Orchestral Network, you know, as the Black Opera Alliance continues to push all of these or uh, uh, I feel like I have to shout everybody out. Uh, arts administrators of color, everybody, all these organizations that are doing the good work. We have to amp up the game. And I'm just sorry. It's time. It is time to say there is enough music out here enough music that uh that uh fits the needs and the sensibilities of many people that we aren't playing that we aren't platforming because we feel like Beethoven Brahms Gershwin Copeland you know these folks we feel like they have to be there well look they don't i'm thinking i'm also in this moment thinking about all of the comments under some of the uh, uh, ads and um, posts that uh, Trilog shout out to Jenna, who does the the social media. You know, we did a, a we partnered last week with uh, the Peabody Conservatory on some some digital promo. 
I mean, you'd have thought I cussed out somebody's mama in those social media posts when all I did was copy and, and I'm ranting right now, but all I did was copy and paste the language that the Peabody Conservatory gave me to announce and to promote their um, EDI event thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you really thought I'd have cussed somebody's mama out the way people are saying, oh, all these identity politics. Oh, get this shit out of here. X, Y, you know, so the normal abrection, all those people, they have their army. Mm-hmm. And they have their people. It's time for people who oppose that to step up our game and not try to straddle this fence. And I know that's the uncomfortable conversation, especially when we start to talk about marginalized musicians, you know, uh, black orchestral musicians, black opera singers going and running to these traditional institutions to play this white music for those predominantly white audiences. That's another part of the conversation. But I feel like if anybody is going to be out here painting, this wall full of pastels, deep red (laughs) or deep black Mm -hmm. in the way that I want to, that's what I have to do. And my opinion is we have to completely dismantle the idea that we need these composers in the space at all, because there is enough music, there's enough literature, and there are enough audiences who would really benefit from from that music, okay? That's what I got, y'all. So go read the full article. And um, and send me all of your hate mail because <laughs> that that seems to come through one way or another. I'm gonna play some more Philip Glass to get us into the second movement to highlight the point once again. Racial equity is a part of the work of renewing spaces. Gender equity is a part of renewing work. And class solidarity and capitalism, as much as we're not talking about it yet in art spaces, that is a part of renewing the spaces when we talk about ticket costs and and all of these things. So with that being said, I'm here for Philip Glass. <laughs> he's not a black composer. He's not a woman composer, but he's a composer whose music has been marginalized and can be put in the place of the Beethoven symphonies. And, and for the goodness, invisible city of you know, for, for goodness sake, you know. Every time I went into a rehearsal as a bassoonist and had to play a Schubert symphony of all things, I'm like, there is something else. There is something else in the world (laughs) to play. Okay. Anyway, here's a little bit of the uh, final movement of Philip Glass's Violin Concerto Number 2, a subtitle, The American Four Seasons. I chose this recording. Norma Labrecht mentioned Marin Alsop's name. So I want to shout out, you know, my women composers, uh, women conductors here as well. Uh, violin soloists, soloists, Robert McDuffie. The ensemble is the London Philharmonic. The finale here to Philip Glass's Violin Concerto Number no. Two. I feel like I shouldn't project and not offer any bit of context. So let me let me say this before we start talking about some music for the second movement. The more my name gets out there, the more people see me, the more I am more of a public figure in the change making spaces, the more intense the so-called feedback <laughs> gets. Mm-hmm. I'm putting feedback in, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. There's this idea and people quoting, like I, I had a, um, a couple of my friends say that, you know, they heard me uh, quoted on other podcasts and, and other shows saying, you know, to make the point of how ridiculous all of these things are. And the real racists are people like Garrett McQueen on, uh, you know, anyway. Who said that? It doesn't matter. 
the point that I was trying to make earlier, you know, as we transition with the uh, Philip Glass, is that even if the race and gender issue was dealt with when it comes to the classical spaces as they exist now, if every concert was William Grant Steele, um, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Florence Price, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, Margaret Bonds, Jesse Montgomery, we can we can go on and on. There would still be room to highlight music that was written today or 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 music written, you know, in in this era. Composers who are alive today. There are so many different directions where we can point renewing these spaces. So when we have folks like Norman Lebrecht going straight to the racial aspect of the conversation in his critique of renewing spaces, I think that says it all right there. He didn't go on there. He, he didn't write that article shitting on any living white composer mm-hmm. or any of these women composers. He was pointed specifically at black folks. And that's the honest conversation that we need to have about how we're programming and how we're um, uh, addressing this conversation. So as I move forward, I'm trying to make the point in a way where I feel like more people will understand the larger point being there is music that is just not being platformed, including music by white men composers now they're alive and they have aesthetics that haven't always been welcome into the space you know so that's you know we we can have a conversation about that but all i'm saying is renewal of so-called classical spaces is a multifaceted conversation i lean in on the racial part of it because that conversation the conversation of race impacts my life in more ways than music so i can bring different perspectives and different ideas into the space as it applies to black music but that doesn't mean that there isn't change making work happening everywhere and musicians who aren't black that also have been sidelined and deserve the space am i making sense do you, do, do you hear what i'm saying yeah i follow you okay yeah it's Sec- cool, man. Relax and relax. It's it's peaceful here. <laughs> Not you calming this, me down. This is safe space. <laughs> okay, we're here in the in the safe space <laughs> of the second movement, where me and Scott are going to highlight some music that we have been spending some time with in our own lives. Get us started while I catch my breath, because goodness gracious, sure. <laughs> um, you remember Inez Guanches? Yeah, shout right? out to Inez. She was in Opus Twenty. Is yeah, uh, Triloquy Live, right? Yep, yeah, with a. Played music and also did an interview, and you know she and I were working. Uh, the two of us were working on uh, some projects for Cinco de Mayo, okay. And, Which is yeah tomorrow. If you're listening to this on and Wednesday, yeah, I was doing a lot of research on composers from Mexico. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, Alondra de la Parra, she put out a release, and the whole idea was it was great. It was letting people know that it's we're more than the hat dance yeah. and tacos. That, her words, her words, we're more than this. Because let's face it, you don't hear, you know, like, uh, like you, you don't hear a lot of composers from Mexico on the regular. Right. And the one that I wanted to bring in, uh, a favorite of mine is Sylvester Revueltas. Mm-hmm. And his uh, famous one is Song of the Maya, right? that gets played quite a bit and there's one particular part in it that i don't th- that i think stands out because it's it's not what you would expect and not, these days i'm trying to point people in the direction of the things that they would not expect but like and during this part there has to be 10 12 percussionists all all working at their own 
piece, their, their own pace, their own beat, right? Mm -hmm. And I sit and I listen to it and I think, all right, we're into the second measure and I'm already lost the one. say you've lost the one what you have to understand is that maybe your interpretation of the one doesn't exist in the parameters of this culture Valid. and the music and all of that Valid. but but i hear what you're saying you that know, i that, yeah that you know i just get i just get so enamored with it that mm -hmm. i would forget what my part of it was yeah you know? yeah but um you know and and going back to that uh, the first movement with, you know, uh, remember when music wasn't about a stance or a political yeah. or a social agenda or something. Revueltas was in with Chavez, led yep. his orchestra for a while, yep. writes a piece of music that Chavez didn't like. And, and Revueltas was like, all right, well, see, I'm not going to lead your orchestra right, no more. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Remember all the way back when it was nice. <laughs> and this is what I'm, and this is what I'm talking about. You know, Sylvester Revueltas is a composer that I, I I hate saying this sentence, but a composer that most folks don't know. Mm -hmm. He's a composer that um, I have always gone to, and I and I need to do better, you know. But who I've always gone to uh, when it comes down time for uh, Cinco de Mayo, especially. But you know, this piece uh, that you're talking about, La Noche de los Mayas. Anytime that I would want to uh, shift the conversation to indigenous peoples you know i would i would go to this piece or uh as mm. you're talking about uh, all of my shows in knoxville were themed so if i would have a percussion themed show this is a piece of That'd music that would for sure yeah. make uh the cut the knoxville symphony uh actually performed this years ago when i was uh when i was down there so it's great to have the radio sort of listening perspective on this piece but also the rehearsal sort of perspective you know you talking about you lost the one i'm not gonna call nobody out but there was a lot of going back to rehearse, you know, certain percussion. If that's sections. what it takes, and that's what it takes. <laughs> but it's 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 a really an, uh, an incredible piece of music. I love it. And any anything else to uh, say about La Noche de los Mayas? You'll notice that I didn't point you to the famous part. You know, the easy part to highlight. You know, in either the open, in the first or the finale. I took you to the part I thought you would like. And that's what I'm trying to do recently. And that's what's so great about some of uh, these pieces of music that the real meat, you know, you have to be there for and mm -hmm. to hear it in context and how it happens, not at the beginning or skipping to the end. Really, really great stuff. If you don't know Sylvester Revueltas, go check out some of his other music. But I, I would say La Noche de los Mayas is the most famous one. That's that's the one that comes to mind for me whenever I um, hear, hear his name. So, yeah, uh, shout, out, shout out to that composer. It's very interesting, Scott the way that our musical picks, you know, I, I bet you 
I bet you there are people who think that we we, we, can, fa- we fabricate, but <laughs> literally, you come over here, and I'm like, all right, what music you got? And I'm like, oh, well, this is the music that I got. Anyway, right. uh, the piece of music that I want to talk about um, is a movement from vignettes for oboe, bassoon, and piano by William Grant Still. The movement is called Inca Melody. So you are, you know, you had a piece <laughs> of music that shines on the Mayas. I have one that shines on uh, Inca Melody. So, but before I talk about the piece of music, I just wanted to. Um, you know, offer some context. So again, I mentioned that uh, with the Lakeville Area Arts, you know, I'm going to be playing uh, this tune and one by Samuel Coleridge Taylor with them. So I went to rehearsal last week, you know, my first chamber rehearsal in years. I've, I've done some orchestral stuff and of course the uh, some solo stuff, but my, my first time just being in that sort of space in a long time. And really, I forgot how intimate it was, you know, playing music of uh, the uh I forget his name right now. One of the former uh, music directors of the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. He did a master class with uh, the U of M Orchestra down there. And he, I always remember, he said, the second most in, uh, intimate thing that two people can do together is make music. And I was feeling that in the rehearsal space, when you have to make that eye contact or really tap into what a musician is doing or the way they're breathing so that you can be with them or enter on time. That's that's really an intimate thing. Uh, something else that was coming to my mind as I was rehearsing was taking that music off the page. Something that uh, my, my teacher Judy used to hate that I do. The ends of phrases, I would always make them a little uh, longer so that I can get the perfect fade away on the notes. And she would be like, well, it's a quarter note. It's not a half note. Mm-hmm. you know." <laughs> but anyway, I don't have a teacher now. I'm grown. So <laughs> shout out to Judy. So, you know, it, I had to, you know, remind myself during the rehearsal that I can interpret this music the way I want to interpret it. And especially considering, you know, some of the reasons that went into my being um, invited to do this concert, you know, mm-hmm. uh, considering black composers on the on the program, the work that I do, you know, I happen to also be a bassoonist. So, you know, I, 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 I have to take even greater responsibility to do what I can to make sure that this music is coming alive in the way that I think it should be, even if some of the things that I'm playing aren't exactly on the page, the measure not being the ink but the measure being the legacy that I want people to understand and how I can, you know, make this music come alive anyway. Um, the vignettes um, span all sorts of feelings. The last movement is uh, like a juba banjo sort of sounding thing. There's a really uh, sweet um, ode to grandfather. That's a, a extended bassoon solo that I can't wait to play. But uh, this movement titled Inca Melody has really been on my spirit and I've returned to it a lot. I want to uh, listen to a little bit of the opening here first. go on some journeys with this music and it you know it it brings me back to something else that my friends would always say they were like oh Gary you're thinking too much about this music but when I hear that opening piano solo Scott I'm hearing an ode to a people 
that we can only read about in books, mm. that we can only um, see movie depictions of. You know, there are no Inca people left thanks to colonization and disease and many other things for us to learn from and experience things from, you know, imagine the music that must've been going on, yeah, you know, in, in, in those civilizations. So I hear that in that opening piano solo. And then the more it's repeated, the more it starts to sound like a spiritual, like a Negro spiritual, mm. almost as if William Grant still is saying, these people are gone. We can't hear from them anymore. Is that what y'all want to happen to us as well? I hear that. And I think about those things and it helps me just uh, just juice that music with all of my emotion, because that may not be exactly what William Grant still had in mind when he was when he was writing those notes. But it's what has survived and, and made it to my ears and to my sensibilities. And I think these are just small examples of the uh, the Venn diagram of culture and conversations that we can have once we normalize so much more of of this music. And then toward the end of that movement, you know, the um, the bassoon and the oboe are doubling the piano, and it just it offers something that has been taking my breath away all week. Yeah, it's like William Grant still saying, yeah, these ancient Incan people who I can only imagine about and write this music that I can think about maybe sounds like what they have done. They didn't make it. You know, they struggled and didn't make it. Here we are struggling. I hope we make it. I hear all of that when I when I listen to this music. So when we talk about diversifying on all levels, not only do we need the music, we need the people who can offer perspectives on the music that help people think about things in a different way. We need the performers who can take those ideas and thoughts and infuse them into their approach to the performances. Mm. It's there, there's so much. It, you know, the uh, the pianist I'm working with, she said that she had never heard of William Grant still, and you can't be mad at her because. What what is what what the orchestra's playing? You know what's on what's on the radios and William Grant still, as we were saying in the opening of this, is not a name that we don't say. Right. You know it's it's a name that we say a lot, but yet it's still not enough. It seems like because gems of music like this are just you know swept swept under the rug. You know diamonds that are hidden under all of the dirt of the repeated Beethoven and Brahms and, and all of that sort of thing. So anyway, go check out uh, the vignettes for oboe, bassoon, and piano by William Grant Still. And again, if you're here uh, in the Minnesota area uh, on Sunday, come on down to Lakeville and hear our take on it. All right, we're getting into the third movement With here. That face. <laughs> this week's guest is Christina Salerno. Uh, she is the executive director of the Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra. Scott, she was actually uh, named Executive Director of the Year. So, you know, wow. um, a, a woman who's out here doing some really incredible and uh, unique and impactful work um, in the orchestral sphere. Uh, she began her career 
in dance. So uh, in our interview, in our conversation, I asked her a couple questions about being a ballet dancer because I don't talk to ballet dancers all that often. I think right. it's kind of a, a cool thing. So she talks about how it's um, a limited career length which you know in part inspired her shift into arts at men and the and the many great things that uh, she's doing with the illinois philharmonic orchestra um where we start again we're talking about unique issues and ballet i, I believe uh, she mentions you know how height um can be used against you no matter what your height is because mm. some uh, places are looking for shorter people. Some places are looking for taller people. And, you know, we go into all sorts of stuff that's happening up there um, at the uh, Illinois Philharmonic. We're going to transition into the conversation with um, a little music from Star Wars. You know, uh, th this comes out on May the 4th. So, you know, Scott, you, 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 I'm sure you can imagine. Maybe, I used maybe, to maybe. body, the, especially if May the 4th were a Friday, you know, mixing music for Cinco de Mayo with Star Wars music, oh, those are those are the fun <laughs> programming days. So getting into the um, the Chavez and the Revueltas and yeah. you know those composers alongside the you know um, the Star Wars themes that we know and love. Do you have a favorite Star Wars cut from from the core films? You know, we can talk about Mandalorian, oh, but uh, Leia's theme. I oh, think that's is... the that's the beautiful one for yeah, you. Yeah. Okay, but um, and all of the marches I think are pretty sinister. And then there's Duel of the Fates. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, sort of a um, future past version of uh, Carmina Burana, really. Yeah. <laughs> and it fits because Star Wars actually comes up in our conversation. When we talk about pops programming, uh -huh. it's easy to go to the movie music and easy to go uh, to the specifically the Star Wars music. So uh, one of the things that Christina Salerno talks about is going even beyond that, you know, and having a pops concert that will really be pops for more people, maybe even younger audiences. But with all that said, you can't sleep on what John Williams has done over the years. Mm. You mentioned uh, how the marches, most of them seem sinister. My favorite track from all of the films is a march, and it doesn't sound so sinister to me. It sounds like the community of extraterrestrial, at least extraterrestrial the Earth, who made the victory in episode six possible. We don't put enough respect on the Ewoks, but I'm gonna put some respect on the Ewoks here. So here's March of the Ewoks by John Williams to get us into my conversation with Christina Salerno, executive director of the Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, anything that could be a physical attribute can be a barrier or a positive mm -hmm. on in the dance world because it's such a visual art form. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things have changed. I mean, when I was kind of going through the ranks, there were specific companies that were known for being on the shorter side. And I auditioned for them because I am on the shorter side. There were some companies that I would call and they would say right off the bat, how, how tall are you? And when I'd give my height, they'd say, oh, no, we're not interested at all. We only have dancers of a of a higher, um, you know, height. Um, but then there's also like the, the window is really small. So I had some friends that, you know, were like 
above where those tall companies wanted them to be. And they would struggle to find somewhere to, to go. Um, some of them ended up in Europe where they have companies of a little bit different composition sometimes. Um, and I, I had a colleague that was like six, one, a female that was a mm. beautiful dancer. Um, the thing is, if you kind of fit outside any parameter, you tended to be someone that was more like a soloist um, type dancing on yourself. Because if you think about like the big Swan Lakes or Giselles, when you see, you know, 30 to 40 dancers on stage, um, they tend to be approximately the same height, approximately the same size, because that gives an illusion of multiples. And when you're trying to create that, like that has been necessary. Um, I will say though, that that's changing a lot now because, um, you know, if you think about certain heights, certain, uh, looks, certain body size, um, that also means like a certain type of person. And, mm -hmm. you know, as the world is becoming more inclusive, I think a lot of, um, dancers of my generation have really been trying to, to break down a lot of those barriers and say, like, does it really matter if someone's taller? Does it really matter if, you know, whatever attribute is um, visible is different than the other people on the stage. Um, no, it probably doesn't matter. And maybe the overall aesthetic um, is not, uh, is definitely not compromised and possibly is even um, enhanced by seeing some difference on stage. So that is something that the dance world is definitely grappling with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it and is shifting. And I'm, I'm happy to see that shift. So as things like DEI take hold across the arts and, you know, in the dance world, folks are talking about some of the things that you've laid out. I wonder how much of that conversation um, has also shifted the way uh, classical dance has been conceptualized in proximation to uh, European traditions and uh, styles of, of body movement. Are, are we, from, from your perspective, is, is the dance world embracing more of the world of dance in, in conjunction with these conversations? Well, yes and no. This is probably <laughs> the case across the world. I mean, I think I think the dance world wants to embrace more of that. Um, you know, classical ballet has a very Eurocentric um, uh, origin story, and that's, that's how everything kind of came down. There have always been other influences. Um, some of which now are not considered, um, you know, or are considered cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, were really an opportunity for people of a certain culture to get to experience another culture because you didn't have, you know, the books necessarily coming through. It would come through on a stage with some sort of, you know, exotic or new element. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that that. Um, history and that way of bringing forward has, is definitely being challenged now. There's lots of people who are doing um, reinvented, you know, stories of the classical ballet stories to like bring them to modern times. And this isn't, this isn't something that just started now. I mean, this has been going on for decades, but I think now um, there's a lot more open conversation about it. Um, where before, you know, at the Dance Theater of Harlem did a Giselle and a Bayou, which they did um, many decades ago, mm -hmm. that was like revolutionary and, and wow, but it was also only something that Dance Theater of Harlem would do. Now, a lot more of the companies are are trying to bridge a lot more of those um, those chasms that, you know, kind of exist in our culture and, and in society. Um, 
but it, it's not a straight line. And I wouldn't say it's super easy. You know, people, as you know, in classical music still hold very fondly, many traditions, Oh yeah. Um, you know, and that exists in, in every walk of life and in every art form and definitely exists in dance as well. Yeah. So despite the, that unstraight line, if you, as you've said, you know, the difficulties and the barriers, you made it. So, you know, there you were living the dream as a dancer and you decided to go sit at a desk. What, what, what triggered that shift for you? Yeah. Well, so another difference for dancers is your performance career is um, always going to be a short performance career. Mm. Although even I will say that that is changing a little bit. Um, there's an Italian ballerina, Alexandra Ferry, who's in her 60s now and has made a comeback and is still dancing amazingly wow. beautifully. Yeah. Wow. Um, and there have been we've been, had some people in the past of dance history that have done that, but like now it's becoming more prevalent. Um, but so, you know, even as a young dancer, you're kind of thinking, what will I do next? What's going to be the next step? Um, and I was somebody, not everybody's like this, but I was somebody that was thinking kind of proactively about what I wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. For a while, I wanted to become a chemical engineer, um, but the science classes and labs just didn't really fit in my dance life. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, so arts administration was something I was just kind of interested in. I watched organizations that I was a part of and see when I thought it was working and when I thought it really wasn't working. Um, I also wanted to be someone that would help lead some of these changes forward. Um, I think a lot of times like the arts are just held and classical ballet for sure is held on such a high pedestal. And like it really, I mean, it, it should be kind of fun and enjoyable um, to everybody, both audience and the people who are working in it. Um, and I think it can be a lot more approachable than it's been seen sometimes in the past. So I kind of wanted to be part of that renaissance of, of trying to, to break down those barriers and find new models forward. Um, yeah. So and, that's and, how I found myself. Here. And not only have you been just a part of it, I mean, you, you've been leading the way and, you know, recently named executive director of the year, you know, congrats on that. That's, that's huge. Are you a, remind me, are you from Illinois originally? I think I, I am. That. Yeah. Western suburbs of Chicago. So um, born and raised, uh, I actually did my original training with Salt Creek Ballet. Um, and then performed kind of all over the place and then uh, was asked to come back to do administration for Salt Creek. And that made sense to come back to Illinois. And yeah, so Chicago is home. How does how does that how has that impacted the work that you've done? Do you feel like you're uniquely uh, qualified to uh, handle the arts in an ecosystem in which you learned the arts and grew up in? I think, I mean, you know, anyone can learn these things with time, but I think when you grow up in a place, you do know some of the dynamics of, you know, um, uh, you know, how different communities operate, what, what are the dynamics that are important in different communities. Um, I will say I was away from Chicago for 17 years, so a lot of things had shifted and I had mm -hmm. to kind of relearn some things and, and get up to speed. Um, one of the things being an Illinois Philharmonic that's been fascinating to me is I really didn't know the South and Southwestern suburbs at all. Mm. Um, and it's just such a, a vibrant, like exciting place to be, um, with a lot of people that care deeply about the arts. Um, so that's been really interesting to know. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you try to make the connections. Of course you have some 
you know, sometimes that's a little bit hard because there's some people that remember you from when you were 13 and are you know still yeah. talking to you as if you're 13, yeah. which has its benefits <laughs> and, and its difficulties. Um, but, you know, you, you, you kind of go through that and, and make your connections as you can. Yeah, you, you mentioned so many things shifting and changing. And, you know, from my perspective, the way that people approach the idea of programming really has drastically changed. Some of the things that you have planned for IPO next season are uh, incredible with world premieres. But you also, you know, slip in some of the uh, the old war horses, as it were, in, into the programming. What's, what's your view or perspective on balancing the canon, as it were, with new music and music that that might uh, engage new audiences in new ways. So that is an evolving story, I think, every day. Um, it's yeah. something we, you know, have a lot of internal conversations with on our board level and with my music director, who's the primary programmer um, and musicians and audiences. Um, so it's always evolving. Um, but, you know, I think about the, the war horses and, you know, the reason why they're war horses is because, number one, they're great music. Um, quite often. But number two, they've been visible for a very long time. And people have, in my case with orchestras, heard them. So, you know, I think about um, a piece of music that I've, I hated the first time I heard it was Prokofiev's Cinderella. Um, I wow. really, <laughs> I found it really dissonant. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't hear the phrasing in it. I, it was just really difficult for me. I think that um, was the case for the original dancers too, if I'm remembering my music history correctly. <laughs> totally, totally. Very revolutionary. It's time, right? Yeah. And it seems, um, you know, so, so uh, accessible now. Um, but I tell you, after being cast in that ballet and having to listen to it, you know, 30, 40, 50 times through rehearsal mm -hmm. and then performances, it's one of my favorite scores now. Like, I just love that music and I hear new things in it every single time. Um, but if I hadn't been kind of forced to listen to that, I, I wouldn't have liked it. Um, and I think a lot of those war horses, you know, the Beethoven's, the, the Brahms, the Bach, you know, the Mozart, people have heard it like you it, it's in some commercials here and there you you remember it from your childhood you know like it comes up and so there's nostalgia there and it's comfort and because it's great music you can hear something new in it each time so so getting back to your question about programming i think um you know one of our main efforts here at illinois philharmonic is to try to bring some new music forward that has just as many amazing qualities um, but if you're not, um, you know, given the opportunity to listen to it, you might not have searched it out on your own. And if you can start listening to some new things, you will start really gravitating towards those things and start seeking them out on your own. And then hopefully those will become the war horses of the future, right? Like, yeah. like all music starts as new at some point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a balance. Um, we have decided not to go completely the new music route um, just because a lot of audiences love what came before. Um, and also, you know, what came before is music is always a stepping stone. People are always learning from it, riffing off it, taking something from it. And so um, I do think it's important to know our history of where these things came from. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, that's in program notes, giving, um, the real story as opposed to just, you know, a one-sided story, like right. there's good and bad with these 
human beings that made this music and also, um, you know, the time in which it was made. Um, and so maybe we can actually open conversations about that instead of, um, you know, kind of painting one picture or the other. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, you know, honestly, the most challenging thing, though, is to get audiences to accept things, I think, because, you know, it's kind of easy for myself and my music director to say, oh, we love this new stuff. Let's just program it. We can kind of get our board of directors behind it, you know, with a few conversations. But when you have thousands of audience members who are paying just through their, you know, wallets of whether or not they like something, um, it's sometimes harder to get somebody to to take a chance on something. Sure. Um, and I'm really pleased to say that like the approach we've been taking seems to be working and, and I'm getting a lot of really positive comments about like, Oh, I didn't know about William Grant still. I'm so glad now I've heard a second piece by him. I do, do, do you know, I'm going to go see, you know, his work be performed somewhere else or, you know, um, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure folks feel really affirmed when maybe they hear IPO perform Florence Price for the first time in, in their lives and they see her name somewhere else and they're like, oh, my orchestra is is doing that sort of thing. Yeah, And in my, in my years in radio, I've learned how to contextualize uh, certain aesthetics for audiences in, in that medium to sort of, you know, prepare them for what they're going to hear or, you know, get them uh, get them into the into the zone. What does contextualizing these new sounds for your audience look like? Is it pre-concert talks? Is it a, a newsletter warning them that it's going to be different when they come back? Well, what does that look like? Yeah, I think all of the above. Um, we do do pre-concert talks and sometimes we do post-concert talkbacks um, okay. because I find sometimes, you know, after you've listened to something, then you might have better questions about what you just heard. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of try to change it up. It's never it's not the same format all the time um, on our social media platforms. We try to like give little clips about something, maybe a different orchestra performing one of the works so that people kind of know what they're going to be hearing, you know, in the future. Um, sometimes some historical things. We have some uh, big screens on the side of our stage and um, we have something called Note This where we have, you know, they're, they're really sound bites, but it'll say different things about the composer and where, where and when he or she was when they composed it. And did you know that this music was also included in, you know, such and such movie or something? And it would be like, mm -hmm. oh, but that's not a John Williams. I didn't even know other people composed classical <laughs> music for movies, which clearly there's lots of people that do that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think I think any way you can get it to people. Um, I really do believe that people are so inundated with information now um, that, you know, not going with just one format of trying to reach somebody um, is important because, you know, usually it's not the one email they notice, but it's like that, like you say, they're in another town and they say, oh, Florence Price is playing here in New York. I, I got a chance to see Mm -hmm. that I didn't even know that was a big deal when I did. Right. Um, so you just keep, keep talking about it as much yeah. as you can. You mentioned uh, Prokofiev earlier, and there's actually a Prokofiev piano concerto coming up for IPO's uh, season closer. When I think about context, I think about not only personal context, but context in the world. Of course, you know, we're still witnessing everything that's going on in, in Ukraine. Uh, 
what 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 do you have to say about um, context in that regard? Thinking about a Russian composer like Prokofiev in light of what Russia is doing to Ukrainians and, and, and in essence to the world. Is it worth going there for your audiences or do you take more of the let's keep that separate approach? Yeah. So again, it's it's always a conversation um, that was programmed prior to Russia invading Ukraine. Um, right. You know, obviously, the situation in Ukraine is deplorable and horrible on so many levels. Um, I have a lot of friends that are Ukrainian. I have a lot of friends that are Russian. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's it. This is a hard time for a lot of people and. Um, so as it goes to the programming, you know, right away, my music director, Stillian Kirov and I kind of like had a conversation, like, are we, are we keeping this in the program? Should we change it? Um, you know, I should mention he's Bulgarian. He's married to a Russian woman. They're both mm. American citizens, you know, like, you know, the, the world is so interconnected now that this is all really difficult. Um, I think one of the things that's easy and clear in this standpoint is that Russia should not be doing what it's doing. And, right. and luckily we live in a place with information that I think we can all agree on that. Um, but as it comes to programming, you know, I think we look at the, the intent of the work and the individual, you know, the composer in this case. Um, and I, I know like, you know, there are some cases in which um, organizations have felt that, you know, they had somebody that was contemporary now that is a direct friend or contact of Putin's. And so, mm. you know, it's probably appropriate and we would make that call as well to not program that now. Um, you know, Prokofiev is an interesting example, though, because, you know, 100 years old, the music is something like that. You know, um, Prokofiev himself lived in Europe for a lot of times. Um, you know, a lot of scholarship says that, you know, he did come, he left during the Russian Revolution and then kind of came back during Soviet times. Um, but a lot of choices that he made were more about self-preservation. Mm. Um, so, you know, didn't clearly didn't stand for one regime. And clearly that's not the same regime that is there now. Um, and so for us, I think now it's, it's an opportunity to showcase some fantastic, great music um, and, and to open the conversation with people about like, why is this a good idea or why would you have preferred, you know, that we not program it? Um, mm -hmm. And let's talk um, because again, I don't, nothing is really black and white. Um, and so, or very few things, there are some things, um, but very few things. And so, you know, like, do, we, we also don't want to get in the habit of, and I don't like the cancel culture right. um, nomenclature, but you know, like just canceling something just because it's associated with something else. Um, you know, you hear the stories with the start of the pandemic about Chinese restaurants that were suffering because people mm -hmm. wouldn't go to Chinese restaurants like that. That is just not where I think this world should be. Um, and I don't think it benefits anybody. Um, clearly, direct perpetrators, um, you know, need to be held accountable and we need to have open conversation. So if if per performing Prokofiev um, helps us all have conversation, then I think that that's actually 
good thing and not yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and for what it's worth, I, I noticed a lot of orchestras were uh, running to the music of Shostakovich because of his reputation for standing up against oppressive regimes. But I think Prokofiev is even more appropriate considering, you know, some of the stories we have about him that live in the shadow of, of Shostakovich. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for a, a great uh, performance of, uh, of that piece. You know, it's, oh, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's always music. It, it's for me, it's music that's prickly enough to sound new to a lot of people, but at the same time within the box enough to be engageable. And as you were saying, maybe even inspire some, some conversation out, outside of it yeah so we can talk about arts things you know all day but a big part of your job is away from the stage and away from the music I, I find it really notable the amount of money that you've been able to to raise for the arts you know it's something that a lot of artists uh, either don't have the experience with or don't have the desire to really engage having those conversations to to get those big donations and to maintain those those big donors where do you attribute um, your success to in that regard, is this something that you learn in arts administration school as a dancer? Are you good at selling yourself and that's had that's bled over? What, what, what does that look like? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you you can only really be successful in fundraising on the long term if mm. your product is really good. Mm. Um, I think on the short term, you know, people are really good salespeople and kind of take that approach sometimes. But I think um when something's really long-standing, it's because the the actual art product is really good, and so I'm really you know proud of the artistic product that we have here at Illinois Philharmonic, um, and that kind of makes my job pretty easy. Okay, it's just about starting conversations. Um, I also really come from the premise that everybody can give to art. Um, everybody has capacity to give. Um, of course, everybody has a different capacity. Um, but if something is meaningful to them and they want to see it flourish, then they will find a way to support it um, if you give them an opportunity and a way to do so. Um, so really, it's just starting conversations with people and also being open to say, you know, your donation matters at the $20 level, your donation mm -hmm. matters just as much to me as someone who's given us $200,000. Like it is important and it's valid. If $20 means a lot to you, then it means a lot to us. Um, and I think, um, I think fundraising at its core really should be about that um, everywhere because, you know, we, we all live in this world and if we all want to see the world be a more vibrant place. Um, we have to kind of support what, what's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think sometimes, you know, a lot of people give to the arts, um, because they want it to be meaningful or accessible to people other than themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, you know, such a selfless thing to do arts donors, Yes, they're doing it for them in some ways, but they don't get to pick the programming or right. you know, like, right. you know, they're they're doing it so that musicians get paid because we really believe strongly in compensating musicians for, for an artist for their work. Um, I'd always love to do more of that. Of course, there's always, you know, some uh, some, you know, barriers to, to to doing everything the way we would like to do it. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, it's important. And if you want to see music and you want kids to grow up with music, then they have to be surrounded with music. And then, Hey, what do you think about helping us do that? Um, and I think if you give people that choice, most people will choose to support. And I think that's really where we've been successful. Yeah, I want to touch on that uh, accessibility piece. So you have donors who have that in mind, making sure that uh, this music, this product is accessible to more people. How does IPO execute that? What does creating accessibility look like from where you sit? Yeah, so one of the things I'm really proud of is our checkout IPO program. So we actually have partnership with 34 area libraries um, and any resident of those libraries communities can go to their library and check out a pass to come see our concert. Um, I forget exactly how many, but you don't just get one ticket, you get a ticket for yourself and I believe your family at this point. Um, and so we get a lot of people coming in through that checkout IPO program. Um, you know, it's interesting when we first started it, there was of course like a lot of concern about, well, you know, people should be buying tickets and and I do believe people should support things that are important to them um, yeah. in, in every case. Um, and, and are there some people, you know, taking advantage of it? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but really not because in general, people who it's meaningful for will buy a ticket. They might come once and then they'll decide, oh, no, I really enjoyed that. I'll come again. Um, but, you know, it's for the people who aren't sure whether classical music is right for them or maybe, you know, aren't ready to make that investment or can't buy that many tickets for their family um, or to be honest, love their library and support their library. And so, you know, this is a benefit of supporting their library. And so we get we get a lot of people um, every single concert to to come through that checkout IPO program. Um, and I think that's one of the, the best ways that we've been accessible. We also try to do um, a number of free concerts, um, smaller chamber groups usually. Um, over the summer times um, that we try to, you know, have free um, admission for. Um, we do a lot. We just started a new Maryland Tannenbaum Youth Music Education Institute. Um, and so all of our education programming kind of goes under that. And some of it's fee for service. Of course, we have to, you know, make our bottom line, but a lot of it is heavily subsidized um, and or free. So, you know, going into school districts and and sending musicians and the school district might pay a nominal amount or nothing at all. Um, so that's another way that we just try to get out there and provide as much to the community as we possibly can. How dedicated to uh, things like POPs programming is the Illinois Philharmonic? We can talk a lot about exposing you know, new audiences to music that's new to them. I also feel like it's important to meet people where they are as, as often as we can. Does, does, does the IPO engage jazz or you know, old, oldies or, or, or what, are, what are those programs? Yeah, so right now we've been integrating those kind of works into our regular concert season. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so, you know, we might have, like last year for one of our virtual programs, we did Duke Ellington's um, Nutcracker um, mm. as opposed to the classical Nutcracker, right? Still Nutcracker, you know. Oops, excuse me. Um, and um, the, you know, so sometimes we're doing that. Um, you know, pops, you're a classical musician, so you know, like, 
I've coming from dance, I had to kind of get around this idea of like what a um, an audience member of a certain generation considers pops sure. is different <laughs> than what I would consider pops. Like right. I consider more, you know, like the Star Wars movies or, you know, some anime screen, you know, things um, more popular music um, than, you know, say sans dance macabre or, mm-hmm. you know, Tchaikovsky's overture, you know. Um, so that that has been a little learning curve. We've been trying to expand more into like, a, you know, ideally right before COVID, we were having serious conversations about doing like a three concert, you know, series of more popular music so that people would kind of see things um, from that venue. Um, of course, COVID kind of put that on the hiatus a little bit. Um, but I tell you where we've really had success with those kinds of things are for our chamber music and especially outdoor concerts. Um, like last year we had a whole concert that was string quartet music, but it was all popular music. So they did Queens, Bohemian Rhapsody. They did, um, Mm -hmm. something from, um, the weekend, you know, there was some Beyonce like, and so, you know, people are there and they're like, what do you mean? Like, oh, that's Beyonce you're playing just with stringed instruments. Like that's kind of fun, you know? And um, so it can be easily accessible that way. I've just heard a great string quartet version of um, Led Zeppelin's um, uh, uh, Cashmere, which is like beautiful, (laughs) amazing. Right. And that's a little old school now for, you know, some today's audiences, but if you can throw in some Rihanna and some weekends, you know, then, then you're hitting people where they are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm going to find that string quartet. Before I uh, throw a final question at you, how can folks learn more um, about the Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra, um, support, buy tickets, and see what's coming up next season? Yeah, fantastic. So you can visit our website. Um, we're at ipomusic.org. Um, and also, you know, you can always call us uh, 708-481-7774. Um, our offices are in Park Forest, Illinois. Um, we perform at Ozinga Chapel, which is on the campus of Trinity Christian College. Um, and really, you know, we're here to serve the south and southwest suburbs of Chicago in any way we can. So um, would love for people to reach out, support, buy tickets, um, you know, come see a concert, get involved, um, or even ask us to come bring some some educational programming to your local schools. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you use the word uh, success, and it's easy for all of us to measure success by the bottom line at the at the end of the season or at the end of these programmings. What does the the money look like? And I understand, you know, how important that is. Of of course, you you know have to think about that all the time. But I wonder, you know, for for anyone listening who may be engaging arts administration, what are other ways that you measure success than the bottom line? It has to be more than just the money when we use that word success. Yeah, I I think um, number one, are people really like enjoying in general the work and and the product and the experience? And I mean, clearly every day is not going to be a party, but you know, like in the end, we're in this work to make art and to give people a chance to kind of get out of their everyday lives. Um, And so if you feel like in general, it's kind of fun and invigorating and and you like what you're doing or seeing, um, then I think that's one great measure of success. Um, I also think pre-COVID, there was really um, a preponderance of 
of judging success by numbers. Um, you know, grant makers are always asking for like how many people are coming and like, you know, each year on year, you want to see increased ticket sales and mm -hmm. you want to see increased audiences and like, clearly audience development is important. We need audiences for the products that we have and um, we want to engage audiences. But I, I really think a lot more now in terms of like the quality of the experience, you know, are people coming up to you after a concert and say, wow, that really meant something to me. Um, you know, we have a number of um, board members and audience members that are people of color. And I've recently had a couple of them come up to me and say, you know, it means so much to me that IPO is performing regularly works by Florence Price and, and, you know, William Grant still and others, like not just the, the names now that have become more visible. And I'm so mm -hmm. glad that they are becoming visible, but like what else is out there? Who else is out there that we haven't done? Um, so I think that's success. And I think Success is when people answer your phone calls, you know, <laughs> like if you if you're looking to collaborate, if you're looking for money, if you're looking for, um, you know, um, vendors for things, if if people are happy to work with you, um, even if they can't work with you now, even if the answer is no right now, but maybe yes for the future. Um, I think that's a great measure of success because that means like you are a part of the community and and hopefully you're making a difference. I thought I'd uh, take us out with a little ballet music by William Grant Still, an excerpt there from Saji. One, one of my favorite pieces of music to return to. I, I happen to have that recording um, on vinyl, but, you know, of course, that's a, a, a digital uh, version of it here. Uh, Howard Hansen with the Eastman Rochester uh, Symphony Orchestra and uh, Chorus. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, the, the Eastman Rochester Symphony Orchestra is historic <laughs> in its own regard for, you know, all of the historic things that were happening when we talk about the conversation of race. Um, and William Grant Still specifically, his uh, first symphony, William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony, premiered um, on the campus of uh, uh, the Eastman School of Music. I've been in oh. that hall where mm. that piece of music was heard for the first time. It's sort of a, a hallowed place. So, mm. um, you know, I, I love returning uh, to that recording. And, you know, again, considering the fact that Christina um, is a ballet dancer, um, it was great, always great to return to some uh, ballet music. Huge shout out and thank you to Christina Salerno for joining me this week. Before we hop into the uh, fourth movement, uh, you know, as much as we've been returning to William Grant still in this opus, there are still people <laughs> who may be hearing about him for the first time, still you know, con considering everything we've been talking about uh, in, in this opus. If you had to introduce someone, as as I'm sure you are, you know, unbeknownst to you, but as you introduce more people to William Grant Still and Florence Price specifically, these two black composers who we feel like we say all the time, but there are a lot of people who don't know, how would you make the introduction? Is there a specific piece of music or, or how would you approach that? How how would I do it if if I was on the air or if I'm just trying to get somebody turned on to their music? Either, either way. Well, again, the lately I'm not trying to point people in the direction of things that they would expect, but rather things that I think they would like. Mm -hmm. And 
<clears throat> excuse me, I've had good luck with Miss Sally's party. Oh, about the William Grant still. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, there's, there's maybe it's that the, there's elements that are almost like show tunes. So that it, familiarity, the, you know, uh, as a jumping off point for people, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But also we've talked loads and loads about uh, his string quartet, you know, how easy to listen to that is yeah, for yeah. anybody. You know, there's the, the simplicity and the complexity in the simplicity piece about mm -hmm. it. Um, for Florence Price, the Mississippi Suite. You see, I, I, I like these programmatic things, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Mississippi Suite takes you right from the headwaters down to New Orleans. Yeah. And you hear... Uh, what you might hear on a riverboat going through these different regions. I mean, yeah. that, that's that's just, a, it's a clever. And with that Mississippi River Suite, you know, it's not always a friendly sound and piece of music right. because it right. wasn't always friendly people along that river, was it? Sure. Anyway, <laughs> all right, we're going to um, get into the uh, fourth movement here with a piece of music that I want you to tell me a little bit more about on the other side of this, but th this is how I'll intro it. So in addition to going to see um, Third Coast Percussion over the weekend, uh, it was Maria Issa's birthday. Shout out to uh, Maria Issa, member of the Triloquy family. And wherever she goes, she brings music. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking live music. Nice. Um, and so at her birthday party, there was this uh, trio, uh, voice, uh, percussion, and uh, guitar. Sound I, I, there wasn't a program or anything. I wish I knew their names or who they were, but the music Music that they were playing was very familiar to most people in the room. I didn't know these songs, but they were really incredible. And the one uh, that I loved hearing the most for the first time for me was this one. We'll listen to a bit of it to get into the fourth movement here. <laughs> At Maria's party, it was uh, the man playing guitar singing with the woman mm -hmm. who uh, was the lead vocalist, and she had the shakers. First of all, shout out to shakers, because... Mm -hmm. It's like that little bit of seasoning that you don't always think about, but when you have it, you're so grateful for it. Anyway, so I, I'm used to hearing a woman's voice in there, but just such a beautiful song and the mm. way those harmonies work. You you had to tell me whether I took a video on my phone and you were like, oh, that's Chan Chan. Right. And who's it by? Well, it's performed by the Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah. And, you know, there's a film also titled Buena Vista Social Club, which mm -hmm. was... Um, uh, I, I think it's it, it has won some awards, but uh, for me that was also just a uh, an audio bookmark in a really really wonderful time in my life. And I hear that, and I start to think of um, company over for some for some cocktails before a meal. Yeah, and then after the meal's over, we push the furniture back and dance, or or play music and sing like yeah. that um a much more carefree point much less to worry about yeah let, let me let, let, let me reiterate a point that i was making earlier i just want to make sure that i was clear when we talk about renewing spaces classical spaces and how some people jump straight to critiquing uh uh, the racial aspect of the conversation. Uh, again, that's where I lean in. I lean in there unapologetically. But as we talk about renewal, there are things like that that I believe fully deserve space 
in on a on a on a classical program on a radio in a concert hall chamber music that's classical music to me that that comes from a tradition that is obviously tied to the foundation of of uh, of Cuban culture the the ensemble at Maria's birthday party was Cuban so mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that, that piece of music in particular is Cuban but anyway you you can you can hear those roots that the the classical aspects of that music. So, you know, there there's work being done in all aspects when we talk about renewal. You know, living composers who happen to be white, yes, but living composers, music like that, of course, black uh composers, historic and otherwise. It really takes all of us in our in our um own different corners, you know, pushing so that the the whole circle gets gets broader. I just mm. want to make sure that's clear. Sometimes I get on this microphone and feel like folks don't understand what I'm saying, but maybe that's the the gaslighting that I deal with. Damn. <laughs> yeah, the inbox. Damn. <laughs> and and it, you know, just like uh Van Lath was talking about in the downbeat. Anyway. We're in the triloquy of the movement where, you know, we offer something uh, true and real for the week. And this week, Scott, I'm just going to tell a quick story from from my week. I had a busy week. Most weeks I'm in here in Studio G, minding my business, (laughs) doing my work. But sometimes the work makes me go outside. Okay, so long story short, I had to go to the city, the suburb of Edina last week quickly tell the non-Minnesota folks about Adina. <laughs> I'm only chuckling I want, because I want to give that's a, a rough neighborhood for me. I, but. <laughs> I want to give a, a, a little disclaimer here. Go for it. I know people who are from or live in Adina and they are delightful people. Yep. But the stereotype, let me underscore that, the stereotype of Edina is uh, a, an affluent suburb. Yep. They yep. have a sur le table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the... Um, things are very kept and manicured and white. Yeah, yeah. So when <laughs> so we so there you are. So when we start talking about suburbs that look like that and feel like that, and you have a person like me, I'm walking down the street. Um, I got dreads. My I'm not wearing a suit or nothing like it doesn't look like I'm on my business lunch. Mm. It looks like I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I can't help but to feel the sort of pressure, the eyes sure. on me. You know, when I got to a diner last week, as soon as I parked on the street uh, in this little business area, got out my car. And as soon as I got out my car, I stood up and looked over and there was a woman standing on the sidewalk looking at me, kind of see what I was doing. And as soon as she saw me look at her, she grabbed her child and, you know, just protectively, you know, put that arm around it. And kept walking, so you know it. The that that is that is a a real thing, um, but nonetheless, I decided to you know go forward in a in a former life that in itself would have made me get back in my car and drive away. But anyway, I, I kept going. Um, the meeting that I had, uh, the address I was given, I get there, and it's a salon full of women who look like they have. Uh, plenty of money and plenty of time to spend plenty of money because this was in the middle of the day. Mm. You know, this was like uh, 2 p.m. I walk in the door of this salon and it was almost, I, th- I used to have a record scratch here on the board. It was almost like the record scratched and everyone turned uh-huh. around and looked straight at me. The receptionist desk is not at the front of the uh, place. It's in the middle. So I had to walk through all of these eyes. Oh, what is this young Negro in here doing? Anyway, I go to the desk and say, oh, I'm here to meet such and such. And they're like, uh, oh yeah, he's uh, he he works downstairs. So anyway, I go downstairs, um, and we have this incredible, incredibly productive uh, meeting. So 
I'm, I'm bringing this up because it reminded me a lot of a story that uh, I like to read from the Buddhist text. There's this guy named Mila Repa who uh, comes home to his cave and there are demons all throughout the cave. So he's running around telling them to shoo, get out of here. And that only, you know, livens up the demons. So he's like, OK, fine. Let me read some of the sacred texts. Maybe that will scare you all away. <laughs> and then uh, so he starts reading these sacred texts and that doesn't scare the demons away. I think the right are they just uh instead of running around they sat there and stared at him with uh gaping eyes you know a, a lot of the way that i felt stared at mm-hmm. in that space so that didn't work so he said you know what fine if you if you're here to take me just take me you know he just gave it all up and he opened his eyes and most of the demons at that ran away but there was one who was still there well with that one demon that was left Milarepa opened the demon's mouth and stuck his own head in the mouth of the demon to say, you're here to take me down. Go ahead, do it. Take me down. I stand firm that this is where I belong. And if this is my fate in this space where I belong, so be it. In doing that, that final demon went away and Mila Repa was able to achieve enlightenment and all of those things that Mm. the texts talk about. Anyway, all of that to say, when I drove to Edina, it reminded me of the many times I walked into a concert hall or into a space to uh, perform or even enjoy the concert. And people think that I don't belong in that space. But in standing my ground, not running away from the discomfort, but in standing my ground, not only am I able and have I been able to perform great music and enjoy great music over the years, I've been able to bloom my own career and my own sensibilities into something so much greater than I ever would have imagined. That's the message that I want to bring out to folks, especially as we're getting close uh, to the end of season three of Triloquy. Sometimes you're going to have some demons, you know, staring at you. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're in a space where nothing can go wrong or nothing can go right. Rather, it might even get to the point where you feel like, you know what, I've lost and I'm just going to let y'all take over, you know, as, as, as that story says. But in letting go of that ego and letting go of what we believe is ours and letting go of the way tradition has been embedded in us, I feel like we can get something greater. And that's what we're all trying to do here in our own ways. Yes, here on Triloquy, we can talk spicy. We can, you know, cuss people out even. But at the end of the day, we love this art form. We love the space that we have landed in, whether it's as performers, as broadcasters, as curators, as administrators, wherever it is, we fell into it and we have developed a relationship with it. So we're trying to change it. I'm sticking, I'm keeping my head in the mouth of the proverbial demon by continuing in this work, by continuing to sift through all of the uh, problematic uh, emails and, and DMs to look in the face, these organizations that feel like they're Uh, 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 being progressive and pushing about progress when at the end of the day, they're only sprinkling in uh, composers here and there and still centering Beethoven and Brahms, you know, just going in these circles that make folks like me feel like I'm going crazy. All of that, I'm keeping my head in the mouth of that demon for the sake of something greater, not just for me and my career, not just for you and not just for Triloquy, but the entire ecosystem. I can't wait until one day I can hear Chan Chan on the radio and your brilliant break to go along with it. You know, one of your South Florida stories, you know, that you can connect with that. I can't wait until we have folks 
um, that are actually standing up against not only folks like Norman Lebrecht, but the folks that platform his messaging and the folks that pay him to continue to do that sort of thing. These are the, the big steps that I want to see in the arts that I think we can get to, especially considering all of the grassroots work that's happening. Season finale next week. Hope to see y'all there.